Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we've got a great show lined up for you. A couple of health professionals who actually happen to be husband and wife are going to help us look at some really fascinating topics that impact Indian country and beyond. I've got with me Rick and Linda Sloop. It's great to have both of you with us today. Thank you. So uh, let's talk about the two of you. I mean, some of you are well-known, especially in the Northwest. You've been doing a lot as far as uh, public health programming as well as working with people one-on-one. So, Rick, why don't we start with you? Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I grew up here in uh, Yakima. Since I was about eight years old, my dad moved here as an obstetrician. And so uh, grew up in Yakima, went to school down in Walla Walla, and then eventually to medical school in Loma Linda. Uh, Linda and I met at, at college and um, she was taking dietetics. And so we actually went down to Loma Linda the same year. I was starting medical school and she was finishing her dietetics uh, program there. And uh, so then we were there uh, for 15 years at Loma Linda and uh, we greatly enjoyed working there and teaching there after finishing residency, Um, but uh, eventually decided uh, that the Northwest was a great place to raise kids. And so that's why we moved back uh, to Yakima 25 years ago. Wow, that's uh, been quite the journey. Linda, we've gotten a little glimpse of uh, who you are. So tell us a little bit uh, more, just build on that uh, background that Rick's provided for us. Okay, so I grew up in over in Western Washington and met Rick at Walla Walla College. I started college not really knowing what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be in the medical field and I knew I didn't want to be a physician, but I wasn't <laughs> sure what else I wanted to be. And my dad was really pushing me to be a physician. So I started out pre-med, took chemistry, biology, and really enjoyed both those subjects and then found nutrition really used both of those. And so after my freshman year, I switched to nutrition and dietetics major and I've just loved it. At this point, I'm mostly we're doing community nutrition rather than so much chemistry and biology, but I'm, I'm still fascinated by the, by the chemistry and biology of antioxidants and phytochemicals, probably more than most people are. Uh, <laughs> Rick and I've been married 38 years. We have two children um, and three grandsons with the fourth grandson on the way this summer. Wow, tremendous. I know it was not easy to get the two of you together, uh, even though we're in all different places right now through the uh, wonders of modern technology. But I know you've got a very busy schedule, both of you, and I know uh, folks are going to really appreciate you having carved the time out because you have such a wealth of experiences. Let's start by talking about one of the things that I think a lot of people can relate to, even someone who hasn't been in a medical office lately. A lot of folks realize that things are not going the right direction with their health. Maybe they just don't have the energy level that they used to. Maybe they're putting on some extra weight. You folks have been making a difference doing community programming. So not just for people that are your patients, but tell us a little bit about some of the things you've been doing and maybe even what you're doing right now. 
Well, um, it really started, uh, I have a twin brother who went to medical school, was a classmate of mine. And uh, when we moved back to Yakima 25 years ago, my brother was already here. And he and my dad started this program uh, for the community. And they actually uh, wanted to do a cooking school, a vegetarian cooking school, and they needed a dietitian. And that wasn't me. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, I came along as baggage. And, uh, and so my brother was kind of instrumental in, in starting off these, uh, these uh, courses that we've classes that we've offered. And uh, eventually, uh, my brother Randy uh, moved to Guam to work in uh, at the mission clinic there. And uh, so I was left uh, holding the bag. And so we, anyway, we've been doing that for 25 years. And uh, we start every year in the spring with a cooking school, we call it the vegetarian cooking school and lifestyle class. And uh, so this involves trying to give people um, ideas about what healthy cooking would look like. And we also do a variety of health lectures, uh, you know, each night where we're talking about oh, sleep and high blood pressure and, and diabetes and various topics like that. And then we, we also open the Bible and uh, do a spiritual segment at the end of every night for 30 minutes. And we take the summer off. And then in the fall, we do something called Guard Your Heart, which is uh, aimed at, oh, the heart disease and diabetes, people that have struggle with that in particular. And that starts with the testing for cholesterol and, and fasting blood sugar, the lipid panel. We do an exercise test. Uh, we do grip strength and a variety of health testing. At the beginning of the session, it goes for 10 weeks. And then it uh, ends with a uh, repeat testing to see how people have done over these 10 weeks. And uh, so that's in the fall. And then in the winter, we do something called positive choices, which looks at some of the other topics we haven't had time to cover, um, cancer and uh, osteoporosis and dementia and stroke. And so uh, we do those topics and again, uh, try to do a, a Bible topic each night with, with all of these that we do. So my slogan, and I'm not actually sure I might have gotten it from somebody else, but it is uh, good health is more than just physical. Okay, excellent. So Linda, we're interested in the kind of response in the community. And I think several things that listeners are likely filling in between the lines. I mean, one thing is a lot of the folks are saying, wow, are you talking about vegetarian nutrition? And I know Historically, in Indian country, people would tell me things like, well, you know, we eat wild game or we eat fish. But I've noticed that a lot of tribes that I've worked with over the years, their historic diet was largely based around these plant-based foods. They Sure, they may have had a little bit of wild game or fish. So these food choices are not strange in Indian country. And then when we're hearing about diseases like diabetes and heart disease, these are things that, of course— they're no respecter of, of, of people, regardless of what their racial or ethnic backgrounds are. But throughout Indian country, these are huge killers, just like they are anywhere else. So, Linda, what are you seeing? Why are people coming to your programs and what kind of results are they having? People enjoy coming. 
we have any, we're doing a cooking school right now and we have about 40 people from the community coming. And, you know, we range from 25 to 50 people probably at each of our classes from the community and they're, and they're just interested. We have, like I said, we advertise good health as more than just physical. So they know they're, they're coming for mental health and physical health and spiritual health. And so they're very interested. A lot of them come back and they'll go through our whole series or they'll wait five years and they'll come back again. So, you know, we see kind of get tuned up. Perhaps you might, you might call it that way, but, but they really enjoy coming. It's an enjoyable time together. We get to know them. We do small groups. And so it's a friendship kind of thing too, where we actually get to know people. And then I think they're more likely to want to change if they know you, if they can see you, you're not just talking, you know, just giving a lecture and you don't care about them. I think that makes a big difference when people know that you care. I love the vision. I love the whole concept. And some of my listeners, as they were listening to this uh, special piece that you include, Rick, with the Bible, a lot of folks uh, who are regular listeners, they know I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, but just like you folks, I mean, we're helping people across the spiritual lines, uh, regardless of whether they're a Christian, whether they don't like Christians, whether they're, uh, you know, following a traditional Native American uh, uh, belief uh, system. But the issue is what I've found, and you guys can tell me if you find it differently, I find if you're sharing practical things uh, from the Bible, whether someone's a Christian or not, they can resonate with that and they can see how it how it just simply makes sense. Has is, is that been your experience over the years? I think it has, yes. So let's talk about some of the specific conditions that you're seeing maybe in your clinical practices over the years, but also uh, coming through some of your community programs. You know, one that we've touched on already is diabetes, and I think one of the aspects of diabetes that definitely translates over into the field of, of neurology is this whole subject of diabetic neuropathy. Maybe, Rick, you could start by explaining to us just what that is and, you know, how prevalent it is. So uh, we call it diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Peripheral, of course, is out on the edges and, uh, so central vision is in the center of your vision, I tell people, and peripheral vision is out on the edges, and peripheral neuropathy is out on the edges, and the longest nerves in the body are those in the feet and toes. So that's where neuropathy starts, peripheral neuropathy starts in the feet and toes, and um, sometimes it's just numbness and tingling, but often peripheral neuropathy is painful. And so then it's not just numbness and tingling, but it's burning, it's stabbing uh, pains uh, that are quite uncomfortable, often made worse by walking, you know, wearing shoes, trying to sleep, bed, uh, the, the covers and sheets over your feet at night really irritate the feet. And so it can really be quite uh, disabling. And the number one cause for peripheral neuropathy in the United States uh, by far is diabetes and prediabetes. So it's a, it's a big, big problem. And uh, when people come in, uh, you know, with burning feet and it turns out they have peripheral neuropathy, that's the, there are a number of tests that we do, but the most important and the highest yield is the test for diabetes. That's what we're most likely to find. And um, so doing something about the diabetes if we do find that they have high blood sugar, even just pre-diabetes, you might say, boy, my A1C is only, you know, only six. It's not diabetic yet. And yet uh, there's clear evidence that people who have pre-diabetes are more likely to get neuropathy and, and painful 
peripheral neuropathy than people who have normal blood sugars. So it's, it's important to even uh, for those people to say, yes, take this seriously. And there, there have been studies that actually show that people with prediabetes, if they will make changes in lifestyle, you know, with exercise, diet, weight loss, that they can actually see some improvement uh, in their nerve function. They not completely, not resolution, not 100% relief, but any improvement is, uh, is wonderful and certainly not getting worse would be a great as well. No, this is a tremendous message. I don't know how many patients that I've seen over the years, and uh, there's kind of this line that a lot of doctors have used with them, and they say, yeah, you're on prescription medications now for your neuropathy, but once it gets bad enough, it'll stop bothering you. You, you won't feel anything. Um, I don't know that that's a particularly comforting message to give to people. So I like the one that you're sharing, Rick, where we can actually reverse some of these symptoms. Linda, let's talk about this, you know, outside of the clinic, because I think like, uh, like Dr. Sloop has shared, I've seen the same thing working with people intensively. We often see improvement in their neuropathy, but does that happen in community programs? Can someone coming to something once a week, do you ever hear people saying, hey, my neuropathy is getting better? Um, well, they don't usually talk to me about neuropathy, I guess. They would be more <laughs> likely to talk to Rick. But but we do see that for sure in our Guard Your Heart class in the fall where we where we have a 10-week program and we do the blood work at the beginning. Some people maybe find out for the first time that they have prediabetes or diabetes and you know they go up to their doctor to kind of figure that out. But as we go through the 10 weeks and we retest, you know, we can we retest blood pressure. We we see some of the some of the risk factors for heart disease and diabetes that are reversed or that do improve over even just a short time as nine weeks because we, we test the week before the class ends so we can go over the results with them. So for sure, we see changes even in a community program where we're just meeting once a week and sharing recipes and sharing health talks and ideas and, and how do you do this? How do you fit exercise into your day? How do you, what do you do with this food? And people are able to share and we do see results. Well, this is just really exciting uh, material. We're going to be talking more with uh, Dr. Rick Sloop and with Linda Sloop, dietitian. We're going to be sharing things that can actually help you maybe uh, gain some more insight into something you're dealing with and also give you some very practical solutions. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guests, the Sloops, are staying by. I encourage you to do the same. We'll be back with more after these important messages. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at AIANL.org. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, AIANL.org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. 
Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose for this episode of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. With me, Dr. Rick Sloop and his wife, Linda, who's a dietitian. We've been speaking about the power of really simple lifestyle strategies, how it can make a difference. In our previous segment, we were speaking about one of the most, uh, well, prevalent problems that we see in diabetes. I've seen statistics as many as 7 out of 10 diabetics suffering from diabetic neuropathy, nerve problems related to diabetes. But Rick, you mentioned something that I know often uh, surprises my patients when they don't have a diagnosis of diabetes, but yet they have every evidence of having neuropathy from, quote, diabetes. They have pre-diabetes, but it's from the, the high blood sugars. One of the tough things in those situations is sometimes sorting out, well, is that all that's going on, or could there be something else causing the neuropathy? From the standpoint of a, a neurologist, a specialist in the brain and nerves, tell us uh, about some of the other things that are on your list when you're evaluating someone who, let's say, they're having problems with numbness and tingling in their feet or burning pains in the feet and legs. Yes, I'll answer that question in a minute. Let me just go back to one other thing about neuropathy. People might say, well, you know, if it hurts, I can just take uh, medication. You know, there's gabapentin. That'll probably solve my, my pain problem. But the, but the, the trouble is with neuropathy, uh, often uh, as it progresses, it affects balance. So it's one of the most common causes of people falling. I mean, I just got done seeing a man with diabetes and uh, he told me, um, yeah, I, I just figured uh, I would just eat my way and I'd control my blood sugar with, uh, with pills, you know. And uh, a couple of years ago, he came to the conclusion that that wasn't working very well. And in fact, that's his problem. That's what he's referred for is that he's having dizziness and repeated falling. Well, of course, those nerves in the feet don't just, uh, you know, tell you if you're stepping on a tack or not. They also convey information into your brain to allow you to make corrections for things that are happening uh, as you walk along. So the uneven ground that you're walking on, that little hole that you step in, the tilt that you 
on the hill that you uh, encounter, your feet convey that information through those nerves to your brain and the cerebellum makes corrections so that you can not fall down and you can maintain balance. And as you lose nerve uh, function in your feet, your balance becomes worse and worse. And pretty soon people start falling down repeatedly because of the neuropathy. And of course, uh, no amount of gabapentin is gonna solve that problem. So it, it is really, you know, it's a painful thing, but it also affects people's balance and uh, often leads them to having to use walking aids because of the neuropathy. So it's one more thing to just be aware of uh, when you're thinking about, uh, you know, what am I gonna do about this peripheral neuropathy from pre-diabetes? Now, it's true that not all peripheral neuropathy is from diabetes. It's the number one cause, diabetes and pre-diabetes. But there, I tell people there are 57 other things that cause peripheral neuropathy. And uh, so sometimes people come in and they know that their feet are numb and they say, but I don't have diabetes. And uh, why are my feet numb? And well, true enough, it's, you know, it's not the only cause. Some of the other causes that we think about like B12 deficiency, that's a very mm -hmm. treatable cause of peripheral neuropathy. Again, most people uh, that develop B12 deficiency do so not because they're not eating enough B12 or getting it in their diet. It's because they're not absorbing B12 uh, adequately. And that's uh, fairly common as people get older. And there are some medications that can uh, make you absorb B12 less well than you should. And, and uh, you know, some, uh, you know, obesity surgeries and surgeries for uh, peptic ulcer disease. And so uh, definitely we always check for B12 deficiency. If you have a B12 deficiency, then of course, taking B12 either as a shot or uh, by mouth at frequent intervals, uh, frequent enough intervals can replace the B12 and neuropathy can recover. So you don't want to miss that. Uh, I tell people, they said, well, how about if I just start taking B12? And the answer is, if you don't have B12 deficiency, taking extra B12 won't do you any good at all. It's just a waste of money and actually may have side effects. Uh, like anything, uh, taking these things can have side effects. So definitely check the B12. And if it's normal, then don't take extra B12. But if it's abnormal, you don't want to miss that. Um, it's very low thyroid. If your thyroid is low enough, that will cause uh, peripheral neuropathy. Chemotherapy, that's a very common cause. There are a number of chemotherapies that result in peripheral neuropathy that tends to come on rather quickly uh, during the chemotherapy. And people will say, yeah, this started when I was having chemo for, for my breast cancer. Alcoholism, heavy drinking is another common cause of peripheral neuropathy. So it's actually, it's probably up there close. I mean, it's not the same as diabetes, but it's it maybe number two in some populations for a, a cause of peripheral neuropathy. Alcohol is a toxin, particularly to the nerves. And it's one of the most common uh, adverse effects of drinking too much. And uh, so they get painful neuropathy or sometimes just pain less neuropathy in the feet. But that's always a good thing. We got to make sure that people are not drinkers. And I tell people, even if you have peripheral neuropathy from prediabetes, you're more vulnerable now. And if you drink and you say, well, I only drink two drinks a day, still it's a toxin and it's going to have additive effects to the prediabetes. So if you have a tendency to peripheral neuropathy, you know, the best amount of alcohol is no alcohol. I mean, mm -hmm. I always tell people alcohol is not a health food and nobody argues with me about that. Uh, <laughs> we all, everybody recognizes that, but, but it is a toxin to the nerves. And, and there are some other things, you know, people can have uh, multiple myeloma. It's a form of bone marrow cancer. And there's several variations on that, but the myeloma proteins can damage the nerves in the feet. Some people that have bad rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or Sjogren's, these autoimmune conditions, sometimes those attack the nerves. So we want to check for those things too. And sometimes peripheral neuropathy is inherited. It runs in families. Mm -hmm. we call that Charcot-Marie-Tooth. That's not nearly as common as the acquired 
neuropathies, but it definitely occurs. And uh, so you, you want to ask about family history. Could this be running in the family? Could there be any, anybody else that has it? And uh, the hereditary form is most often autosomal dominant. So you see it in every generation. It, it wouldn't skip generations then if it's, uh, if it's the autosomal dominant form of, of peripheral neuropathy. Well, I can see where it's good to have a neurologist in your home, Linda. <laughs> oh, definitely. It's very helpful when you're sorting through some of these questions that come up a lot when I see people in, in my medical practice. Linda, I know you have a, a special interest in something that Rick kind of touched on. He was talking about this whole aspect of you know taking supplemental, uh, I know you mentioned B12, but it could just as well be you know minerals or other phytochemicals. And Linda, you've spent a lot of your work as a dietitian trying to help people get a balance of phytochemicals and nutrients in whole plant foods. Why has that been so important for you? Why don't you just tell people, hey, go over to the health food store you know, and buy these five supplements? I do a talk called God's Packaging, and it's based on what God, at the very beginning during creation week, when the creator designed people and he designed a diet for us, he created food. He didn't create supplements. And so when God <laughs> created food, he put everything in there that we need. And, and you think back 100 years ago, who knew about antioxidants and phytochemicals? Nobody. Even 40 years ago, when I was in college, we didn't know about phytochemicals. Now you look at all the thousands of phytochemicals that have been identified, and you think, well, yeah, we've got them all. Well, probably not. Probably the creator is a little more complex than that. And so we, we see even more complexity in the food. And so if we just pull out one nutrient, say beta carotene, that was a common one a few years ago people that had good levels of beta carotene had less cancer or less, you know, health problems. And so it just got to be a big industry. Everybody took beta carotene. Well, that's only one carotenoid out of, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And so when you take the nutrient out of the food, it's not the same. The, the nutrient needs the food. And then the food also needs the nutrient. It goes both ways. If you take a whole wheat kernel and you refine it into white flour, it's no longer the way the creator made it. So e either way, you, you need the whole food and you don't want to take things out of your food and then eat it refined, but you don't want to take things out of your food and skip the food also. <laughs> That's the way I look at it. You, Linda, earlier in the show told us about one of the things you're really interested in is that is cooking classes. And I know there are folks in the Northwest who do regularly tune in to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. And they're saying, wow, I mean, sounds like these folks are not all that far from me. Is there some way to connect with you, learn about the programs you're offering so that people could actually come... Uh, you know, and actually attend one of the programs you're offering. Absolutely. Yeah, we're right on the edge of the Yakima um, Nation here. And and we have a website called healthyyakima.com. So there's actually two Ys in there, the Y at the end of healthy and the Y at the beginning of Yakima, healthyyakima.com, that we list the three different classes that we teach throughout the year. And there's an, you can register online there also. So that's that's a valuable resource. So now should someone, if they're getting interested in this, should they start saving up? I mean, are these expensive <laughs> classes, you know, maybe... A thousand, two thousand dollars uh, per session. No, we, we're charging thirty-five dollars for the eight-week cooking school that we're doing right now. Then they get samples every night and and you know talks by physicians and and other health professionals for that. Fifty dollars if you come as a couple and just take one recipe book. So we help people that even if, if even if that is a difficulty, it's it's not a problem. We're not not looking to get rich on this program. Oh wow, that's exciting! So I, I'm starting to wish I was closer to Yakima so I could take advantage of what you guys are doing. Kind of runs in the family with me. My my grandma actually was a dietitian. I didn't even realize that until I was older. But she graduated from Loma Linda University, same place I did in 1929, one of the first classes. And she wow. did community cooking schools in um in the you know 30s, 40s, 50s. My mom was a home ec teacher. She did community cooking classes as I was growing up, and then here I am. <laughs> so it's something that's it's been in our family for a long time. 
So basically, when someone comes to one of your classes, they're not just getting the benefit of your wisdom, but the benefit of multi-generations in the extended Sloop family. Is that fair to say? Right. Both sides, really. You know, Rick's side, you know, did, did health ministry for years and years. And, and cooking is just such a practical thing. If you want to make a change in, in somebody's lifestyle, and they, I had a person just tell me this last um, Tuesday in our health class, I've never eaten vegetables because I don't know what to do with them. Mm. And so now he, he was so excited. He's like, now I know what to do. I made this salad and I'm going to eat it. And so I think just seeing these foods, you know, whole foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, what do I do with them? I mean, you just eat an apple, you could just eat a piece of broccoli, but if you can, if you can see some interesting things to do with them, and then also with the sampling, you just know right off, well, I don't like that one, or those didn't taste right to me. You don't have to try that recipe again. So they're very practical, which is what I like. Tremendous. We do have to step away. We're going to be coming back with more on today's edition of the broadcast. The Sloops will be staying by. Rick, a physician with a specialty in neurology, and Linda with expertise in dietetics and running cooking schools. We've got a lot more to come. Don't go away. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's S-A-M-H-S-A slash support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the second half of today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. 
We're talking with the Sloops. They're bringing to us expertise in the areas of dietetics and neurology. And it really leads up to a question that I hear often, not just from patients, but from people that just run into me in even social situations. It is not uncommon for people to express concerns about their mental clarity, their cognitive functioning. They're wondering, am I developing dementia? Such a pressing concern today, and Rick, as a neurologist, I'm sure you've got many folks coming through your office every week that are really concerned about this very same issue. Isn't that the case? That's true. So tell us how you process things. Someone, let's say they're in their 50s, maybe in their 60s, they say, you know, doctor, my memory is failing me. I I just don't think as clearly. I'm, I'm forgetting things. What goes through your mind as a neurologist and how do you walk them through the process? Well, I would say it's interesting. Often people who are starting to struggle with the true uh, dementia of some kind uh, don't recognize it themselves. There are a few that definitely do and they come in. I have a medical student working with me from the University of Washington right now and we talk about some of these things and and, uh, one of the uh, signs they say is comes alone sign. Uh, So the comes alone sign is that the patient just shows up and says, I think I have dementia. And, uh, and probably they don't, Uh, they probably are concerned about their memory, and and there might be something they could do that would help improve their memory, but they probably don't have dementia, if they just show up by themselves. Um, You know, occasionally, uh, you know, the kids are disinterested enough that they say, yeah, mom, why don't you go see the neurologist and they don't show up with mom, but, but fortunately, that doesn't happen very often. One of the things that people are confused about here is, uh, well, what's the difference between Alzheimer's disease and dementia? And they always ask that. And of course, uh, dementia is the broader category. I I tell people, uh, you know, you might say, I have an automobile. You know, I have dementia. Well, what what kind of what kind of car do you have? Mm -hmm. Well, I've got a Toyota. Well, that's Alzheimer's, right? You know, or I I have a, a General Motors. That's the that's Alzheimer's, right? That's the most common dementia but it's also known as Alzheimer's type dementia. And then of course there are other kinds and Alzheimer's is the most common. The next most common is probably vascular dementia. Vascular dementia would be from strokes, having multiple strokes that affect the brain. And as this builds up and you have further damage, you begin losing memory function and thinking ability. Another common dementia, which is probably almost equally common to vascular dementia, is dementia with Lewy bodies. So that's a a more recently described dementia. And uh, it's a lot like Alzheimer's disease in terms of the memory loss, but they don't just have memory loss, they have Parkinsonism. So they begin shuffling, they start having a tremor, they have rigidity and difficulty getting in and out of deep chairs and trouble rolling over in bed and their handwriting gets smaller. Those are Parkinsonian features. They also often have visual hallucinations, see people in the house that aren't there, little kids, a girl walking down the hall, sometimes animals that aren't there. Um, They also have fighting dreams at night. So during their sleep, instead of being paralyzed during rapid eye movement or REM sleep, instead of being paralyzed, they're not paralyzed. And so they're acting out their dreams. Somebody is chasing them. Mm -hmm. They're running in bed. They're fighting the assailant, which is often their <laughs> spouse in their sleep. And uh, it can be kind of scary for the, for the spouse. Sometimes they jump out of bed and head across the room and fall over the coffee table in their dream. Uh, and we call that REM sleep behavior disorder. But 
those are typical features of people who have Lewy body dementia or dementia with Lewy bodies. And again, it's a pretty common type of dementia, but those are probably the most, the three most common kinds would be the Alzheimer's disease and then uh, vascular dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies. There's a number of other dementias. People can have frontal temporal dementia. You can have dementia from uh, mad cow mm-hmm. disease, right? That was a few years back, but we have Jakob Kreutzfeld, uh, which is a, a relative of mad cow disease. And people with Parkinson's disease after 10 years and longer may start developing cognitive decline. So there are a number of other things that do cause dementia, but those are the big three. Now, Linda, Rick was talking about these causes of dementia, you know, very illuminating. And I think that explanation really helped because uh, I hear the same kind of questions often. But one of the things that he mentioned was these vascular dementias. Whenever we talk about circulatory disorders, I mean, you hear about strokes, you hear about heart attack. I know, as you mentioned earlier in the show, you too have been doing programming to try to help people with heart disease and heart disease risk factors. One of the things we're hearing a lot about is moving more in the direction of a vegetarian type diet. There's a particular term that's being used. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening in the field of dietetics and how it relates to especially circulatory health? Right. So heart disease and stroke, you know, anything that affects your heart and your circulation, like, you know, it's going to affect your stroke risk, things like that. And so, so the diet that's best for that is what we call a vegetarian diet, but a vegetarian diet could include dairy products and eggs. And then that may have some, some, you know, saturated fat that you wouldn't need. You can call it a vegan diet, but then that, that can be associated with unusual things too, or, you know, there can be, you know, Oreos are vegan, right? There can be unhealthy things that are vegan, and so the term that's used most often in the literature now is whole food plant-based, which is really quite a mouthful. It's like, I'm on a whole food plant-based diet. It's like, what is that? It's actually very descriptive though. Whole food, that doesn't mean you can't slice it or dice it or, you know, grate it. It just means it's whole rather than refined. And then whole food plant-based means it's plant-based. So it's a fruit, vegetable, whole grain, nut, or legume rather than animal-based, like, you know, beef, pork, chicken, eggs, ice cream. Um, things like that. So whole food means unrefined. So you think of whole food like an apple versus applesauce, where say the skin has been taken off and oftentimes sugar has been added or apple juice where you lose all the fiber. So the whole food is the apple and then the, and the various levels of refinement that can happen to that um, a potato, you know, baked potato, roasted or whatever with the skin on versus French fries or potato chips. You see you're losing nutrients, you're losing fiber, you're adding calories, you're adding fat, you're adding salt. So the whole food and again, it doesn't mean we can't cut it. it. doesn't mean we can't cook it and make it palatable. But the whole food in terms of not being refined is, is and, and, and that type of a diet is where the, where the benefit is. And when I teach, that's what I, that's what I try to emphasize is that the food's the way that the creator made them is where the nutrients are. It's where the disease fighting properties are. And, and those, are in the, those are in the plant foods. I don't spend a lot of time beating up on milk or, or meat. So again, if, if a, a person is eating some fish or you know, wild game, as you mentioned earlier, um, in a traditional native diet, perhaps, that's not a big deal to me. I, I'm, I'm focused on, let's, let's look at the plants. Let's, let's look at how we can get more plants in your diet because that's where the healing properties are. And as they do that, then they're gonna be less room on the plate for other things. And I don't have to spend my time beating up on, on other things that, that aren't as, as important to me as showing where the benefits are in the plant foods. 
I love that perspective. I think it's so uh, so practical, and I think people, you know, can really engage with that instead of feeling like, boy, I better not go in and see uh, Linda. She's going to try to take away my favorite foods, right? Right. Practical is my middle name. Good, good. So, Rick, I want to come back to you because, you know, we're talking about dementia. Now we're speaking about these whole plant foods. We're really talking about lifestyle. I mean, diet is one aspect of that. And I know a lot of people, a lot of families, they get discouraged. They've got a family member seeing a neurologist for dementia. They're being prescribed different medications. And often what I hear as a primary care provider, as an internal medicine specialist, is, you know, it doesn't seem like, you know, anything's helping mom or dad, you know, seeing the neurologist, but it's not making much difference. Are there things lifestyle-wise that can make a difference as far as cognitive function, Rick? Yes, I think you bring up a really good point that the things that have been approved for treating dementia in terms of medications are very lackluster. Really, at best, maybe a third of patients will show some benefit with these medications, and two-thirds of them show no measurable effect. And the medications don't slow down progression. They're just treating symptoms, and so maybe a third of people will get some benefit and often, even then, the benefit is pretty unremarkable. It's not very dramatic. And so it is pretty discouraging. And despite all of the research, I mean, you think about how common dementia is and Alzheimer's disease, despite all the research, the medications have proven to be so far just very uninspiring. There is some genetic risk. So we all have to think about that. If mom or dad had dementia, that does increase our risk. It's not autosomal dominant. It's, uh, it's not that if they got it, we're going to get it, but we have higher odds. And uh, so the earlier in life that we start making changes in our lifestyle, the more chance that we're going to be able to avoid it or delay dementia. Now, I think the big things that I like to talk to people about, one is their diet. There's little question that the plant foods are what's healthy for our brain. Mm. So the more plant foods, the better. I think the other big things that people need to be aware of, uh, I always talk about sleep, especially when we're in our middle age years and we're working uh, to save up for retirement and uh, we may be working long hours. We may be cutting that sleep short and uh, sleep is so important because a lot of these uh, metabolites from the brain that can actually turn out to be toxins are cleared during sleep and that doesn't happen when you're awake. And so really, it's really important to try to shoot for seven to eight hours at least of sleep every night. That's a, a really important thing. Exercise is a big one. There's some of the strongest evidence really in the literature for preventing dementia is people who will exercise and stay fit through their lifetime. So especially in those middle-aged years that you don't get carried away with work and you don't have time for exercise. So uh, we say a minimum of 150 minutes a week, you know, 30 minutes a day of aerobic exercise most days of the week, really, and 45 minutes would even be better. Mm. So exercise is going to have a big effect. It's hard to wait until you start getting dementia and then exercise it away. Unfortunately, it's true that even if you do develop dementia, there are things that can improve activities of daily living can be performed more successfully in people who are exercising when they're starting to develop dementia. So there still is benefit even then. You may lessen their anxiety level, but unfortunately, you're not going to turn it around by just starting them on a walking program the, the overwhelming majority of the time. But exercise is another really important thing. 
So, uh, and I think the, the last one I tell people is about is use it or lose it. Mm. That adage goes for so many things, but uh, using your brain is really important. So staying engaged, whether it's reading, I tell people reading the Bible is one of the best exercises for their brain. Playing a musical instrument, learning a new language is always good. Mm. You know, that's one of the greatest things. But you think about uh, my mom is an organist, the complexity of having to play the two manuals and the pedals. And, you know, I play the trumpet. It's a whole lot easier. But any musical instrument, right? It might be a guitar. It might be, uh, you know, the ukulele. But something, those are great exercises for the brain. Interacting with people, that's another use it or lose it. That's been hard in the, the last two years for many people mm -hmm. with COVID. You think about all those people who already have dementia and maybe they're stuck in the nursing home. And I tell people they've kind of been locked in solitary confinement mm -hmm. almost in many places. How good has that been for their brain? You know, we've seen progression. We've seen death rates go up rather dramatically. So exercise with social interaction is really important, too, in terms of trying to improve your neuronal circuits. Very practical stuff, uh, Dr. Sloop. We're going to step away just one more time. We're going to be giving you information about how you can contact the Sloops, take advantage of some of their great community programs if you're in the Northwest, but also some other really important insights that I think can help you and those you love. I'm Dr. DeRose. We'll be back with more right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with the final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose interviewing the Sloops. We've been hearing from a neurologist and a dietitian talking about some practical things you can do to improve your health. And Linda, we want to start with you. Before we dive too much into uh, some of the other important material that we've got on our list here, I did want to give another opportunity to mention your website because folks may want to connect with you. They may want to go through your programs. Tell us how someone can do that once more. Okay. Our website is called healthyyakima.com. So they can go to healthyyakima.com. And Yakima is spelled Y-A-K-I-M-A if you're not from uh, (laughs) Washington. Okay. Healthy Yakima, Y-A-K-I-M-A, healthyyakima.com. And if someone is not there, you know, we have listeners throughout the country and even outside of the lower 48 states. Uh, Maybe one of our Alaskan listeners is tuning in right now. They're in Nome. We've got a station up there. And they're saying, hey, I'm not going to make it down to uh, Yakima. Can they jump on that website and find some things that would be a benefit to them? Yes, definitely. Okay, good. You know, we, just, we describe our three classes, but there's also some other information on prevention and things like that. Great. So in our last segment, Dr. Rick was talking with us, Linda, about catching this vision for preserving our mental health from early on, You know, getting serious about our exercise, about our lifestyle. When it comes to the area of nutrition, how challenging is that uh, for people to grab hold of that message when they're feeling healthy. Is that a, a challenging time in your experience? When they're feeling healthy? Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess some people, they've grown up with it. A lot of that depends on the parents you inherited if they're, if they're interested. So the neat thing about community nutrition classes is if you can attract young people, then they get the mm-hmm. vision earlier and they can raise their children with a healthier diet because so often there's genetics, but there's also lifestyle and, and they go together because we inherit our genes from our parents, but we also learn to cook from them. Mm-hmm. And so the sooner you can start, the better. And again, often people don't recognize their need. If they're in their 30s, say, and they're overweight, and they're kind of headed down a pathway that's going to lead to diabetes, but they don't have it yet. They may not realize that. So again, the younger you can find people, which again, in a doctor's office, they're probably not going to come to see a neurologist if they don't have a problem. You know, primary care, for sure. If you're seeing younger families and things, you could you would have more of an influence. But with our community classes, you can sometimes we get to younger people. Oftentimes, it's older people that come to that as well. But the younger you can start with a person, child, they develop those habits. They don't have to break them when they're older. No, I mean, that's a powerful message. I know as a physician, and I'm sure, Rick, you see this many times as well, you'll be educating someone, we'll be talking about these principles, and they'll say something like, well, yeah, I mean, that might be good, but I hate vegetables. I just can't (laughs) eat them, and they make me sick. Have you heard that before, uh, Linda? Sure. And I'm actually a really good example of that. Growing up, really the only vegetables that I liked to eat were potatoes, green beans, and corn. You wouldn't know I would be a dietitian who loved all vegetables, but if you saw me as a child, I fortunately had a very wise mother who made me eat them, and and she just didn't make a big deal out of it. If we were having broccoli, there was three pieces on my plate. If we were having asparagus, there was three spears on my plate, and I just had to eat them. And I think that constant exposure is helpful. Um, it took me a long time, but, but really, I, there's probably not any vegetables I don't really like now. So it does. It, you can change that. And I think oftentimes I, I had another grandma not, <laughs> that, that would boil the vegetables for an hour. You know, she grew a garden, gorgeous, beautiful mm-hmm. vegetables, and she'd bring them in, put them in a pot and boil them for an hour. 
and, you know, the nutrition is gone in that boiling water and the texture is mushy. And so I think, you know, if you've been exposed to vegetables like that, try them again and, and try different ways of cooking them. Eat them raw. I actually could eat raw vegetables as a kid. I liked raw broccoli and raw cauliflower when I wouldn't eat them cooked. You know, try different vegetables and salads, learn new ways of cooking them. Again, that's the advantage of our cooking classes is people can see vegetables cooked different ways and like, oh, I never knew I liked red peppers. And so, you know, having the opportunity to see them, taste them again, grow them in your garden. If you have kids, we, like I say, we've got a two-year-old grandson who was here just this last weekend and my asparagus is growing in the garden. He was so excited to see it. He just, you know, I cut it off for him and he just ate it right in the garden. So oftentimes when you have your own vegetables and you can eat them fresh, that's helpful too. So gardening, it goes right along with good nutrition. Yeah, that's tremendous. Rick, uh, you know, we mentioned something earlier in the show and I, I think some of my listeners may still be trying to process this one. Because we're speaking about all these lifestyle things, things that can make such a difference. And we did talk, not in great detail, but we spoke about this uh, entity called vascular dementia. And I know a lot of folks out there, they're struggling with mental health issues uh, and actually having dementia. And they may get this diagnosis of vascular dementia. And they said, but I've never had any strokes. How does that work? How does a, a person have vascular dementia, have no history that they know of, of strokes, but then the neurologist will say, oh, I see all this evidence of damage in your brain? Well, there's probably two ways that occurs. Uh, I would say, number one, as we get older, there are, uh, particularly on the MRI, there are white spots that occur in the subcortical white matter up next to the ventricles in the deep part of the brain. And uh, some of that is normal aging. And so sometimes I think there may be, maybe not necessarily on the part of the neurologist, but perhaps even sometimes that somebody is developing memory loss and they do an MRI and they find some white spots and they say, oh, it's vascular dementia. And that might be an overcall mm. because again, some of those, that kind of thing is very normal. I tell people it's like getting wrinkles, you know, and uh, you can't get too excited. You know, if I jumped up and down and said, well, yeah, you've got some wrinkles. And I, you said, well, I'm 80 years old. You know, what do you expect? So, uh, you know, so I think you have to take that with a, you know, don't just diagnose vascular dementia because you see a little bit of uh, white spots in the subcortical white matter. But it is true that people who have vascular risk factors in particular, high blood pressure or diabetes or, or cigarette smoking or obesity, they're more likely to, with those vascular risk factors to get small vessel disease. And some of those areas that are damaged are silent, quotes, silent areas of the brain. But if you add enough of those together and maybe none of those amounted to a, a visible stroke, but there's been enough damage uh, in the silent areas of the brain that is no longer silent and it starts affecting your processing speed and, and uh, cognition. And, uh, and it really is a cause for dementia, even though you've not had a recognized stroke. No, I'll tell you, there's so many things that uh, can contribute to some of these problems that really we see quite commonly. And I'm so glad that you folks are on the front lines. You're trying to keep people healthy. You're trying to help keep your community healthy. Linda, for someone who maybe gets dragged into a cooking class. I'm sure you've seen that before. You know, it's one spouse or the other that's all excited. Someone else is, oh, come on, do I really have to come there? And you can tell that uh, someone is really engaged, someone else isn't. What kind of things do you do as a team or as a dietitian that draws those people in and that over the course of a cooking school or over the course of a 10-week program, you see some, you know, lights going on and people making changes? I think you just, you know, you want to make it interesting. You want to make it fun. You want to make it enjoyable. You know, so we, we try not to just lecture straight for an hour and a half. You know, we have breaks in there with the cooking school. Of course, you can sample food. And with the guard your heart class, we have the 
about 15 minutes, small group time where people can share. Maybe that person will get in a group, you know, again, we just kind of randomly assign the groups, but maybe they'll get in a group with somebody who feels the same way they do and they can encourage each other or, or as, as different people share, sometimes that, that reaches them. Oftentimes with the cooking school, the person who's interested will come and the, the one who's not interested stays home. And so one way we go with that is it's hard to guess exactly how much food to bring for the samples. And we always have leftovers. And so rather than just bringing it home for myself, we package it up and put it out on the table, the registration table. So as they leave, they can pick up a little container of, of one of the things we made. And, and then oftentimes the person at home will try that. Whereas if their spouse had cooked it, they'd be like, oh, what in the world? Where? Well, hey, look, try this. This lady at the cooking school, she made this. And then maybe they're interested and they'll try it and they, they discover they actually like it. We have a neighbor like that. She came to the cooking school. Her husband, he's a meat and potatoes guy and just really wasn't interested. But even he's changed over the you know 10 years that we've known, we've you know lived nearby him. He's tried new things. His wife has become you know a lot vegetarian. And so he's, he's seen new foods and he's willing to at least look at them. Well, this is really uh, great material. Rick, um, there's folks that say, boy, I'd love to have a neurologist like this who explains things so clearly. But if I'm understanding correctly, on your website, we can actually get some material that you and Linda have worked together to present there. Is that true? Well, we have some podcasts that we did for the COVID pandemic. We had recorded most of these lectures and had them available, but um, the conference uh, website that hosted that uh, was the victim of some kind of malware mm. a few months ago, and we haven't uh, got it back up. So unfortunately, they can't listen to the talks that we have done. It's not up there at this point, unfortunately. But we can get some maybe written materials and other things at healthyyakima.com. Is that right? Well, they'd certainly be happy to email us, and uh, we could we could definitely send us send them some things. We have a lot of this stuff uh, written up. Okay, wonderful. Well, our time has just about slipped away from us. Any uh, final messages, words of encouragement that you'd like to leave our listeners with, either one of you? I think your title of your show here, you know, American Indian and Alaska Native Living, that population has been, unfortunately, more greatly affected by obesity and diabetes rates and things than perhaps some other segments of the population. And I think just a word of encouragement that just because your dad had diabetes and your mom had diabetes and obesity doesn't mean you have to pass that on to your children. Um, those things can be changed with lifestyle. Again, not 100%. You may still get those diseases, but maybe you'll get them later in life. Both my parents had heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and I don't have any of those yet. <laughs> so so that's a blessing. I think, you know, we can see that. And, and so it's easy to become discouraged and say, well, why try? Because everybody in my family dies of diabetes. And so I think it's encouraging to know that you can change, maybe not so much for you, but for your children and your grandchildren. Tremendous. We do have to step away. Thank you, uh, Dr. Rick and Linda, for joining us today. You're welcome. Well, that's all for today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.